This is a football. Now, I say that and you laugh because all of you are kind of like, well, yeah, we know what a football is. I mean, it's the beginning of football season, or maybe you're one of those people like, I hate football season, but, but we pretty much have a good idea of what a football is. There was a coach back in the day, his name was Vince Lombardi, probably one of the greatest coaches in the NFL history, and um, he would bring his team together at the start of every single training camp. He would get them together, and the first thing that he would tell those guys, he would grab a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, you would think you would do that when you were going to some other country somewhere where maybe they've never seen a football before. They have no clue what football is. But for Lombardi, he wanted to make sure that his guys knew the fundamentals of what they were doing. I mean, here's guys that have grown up playing football their whole life. These guys were all pros. These guys had played on championship teams for the Green Bay Packers. And yet he begins every single training camp, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. Let me read a little bit more about what Lombardi would say. He said, what you're going to do now is go back to the basics, and we're going to learn, drill, and practice the fundamentals until we become better at them than anyone else in the game. If you do this with me, I will make you champions. Today, we continue our series, like Kathleen was saying, church is a team sport. And this morning, we're going to talk about the fundamentals of this thing that we call the church. Now, if you weren't with us last week, let me do a little bit of a recap for you. We talked about the definition of church. Uh, we said that that term church, it doesn't mean building. When Jesus uses this word, or when we see this word in the New Testament, it doesn't mean a building, it doesn't mean an event that takes place on Sunday mornings. What it actually means, it's this word ecclesia Jesus uses. It's about this gathering of people that are called together. And they're called together to live out the mission of Jesus. So we talked about the definition. Then we talked about what this team looked like. If you were here, I had Mr. Potato Head with me and said, hey, like Mr. Potato Head, there's all these different parts. And we put all those parts together and it makes Mr. Potato Head. It's the same thing with the church. Like we're a team, we're one body. J Jesus is the head of that body, but we're a part of that body. We all have these different parts that we play within the church to make up the church, to make up this team. But how does all this work together? How do we live this out? And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and we're really going to talk about the fundamentals of this thing, again, that we call the church. And we're going to read a scripture that you're probably familiar with. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard it a million times, but uh, I think sometimes we kind of gloss over it. So we're going to spend our time looking at it. It's Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42 through 47. Here's what it says. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Next, a little bit earlier, we're going to kind of go back and forth between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Um, before this, in Acts 1, we find there's this little tiny church. I mean, little comparatively speaking. It's about 120 people. And then Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit from God, comes and uh, this amazing miracle happens, and this little church becomes this mega church of over 3,000 people. We read this in Acts 2, that 
3,000 people give their lives to Christ and are baptized. So you, you go from this little church to this mega church in, in the matter of really hours, and it's like, what do we do? Because here's what Jesus didn't do before he went to heaven. He didn't leave any manuals for them to follow about what church should look like, right? It's not like he said, all right, guys, here's the deal. Um, you're in your small group, and we all know Peter, right? You know, Peter talks too much. Peter thinks he knows it all. But what if you've got a Peter in your group? How, how do you handle that? Well, here's what you do. You go to page 15, section 3, article B, and I have written in there everything you need to know of how to deal with people like Peter, right? Have fun. I've taken care of everything you need to know. That's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't give them manuals, doesn't give them this playbook that they've got to follow. They've got to figure this out on their own. And so what do they do? They do the things that are normal to them. Look at Acts 2.42. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. What are they doing that's so extraordinary, that, that's making this, this church just kind of explode in those, those moments? They're not actually doing anything crazy. They're not doing anything that's, that's new and, and shiny. It's not earth-shattering. I mean, if they post this stuff on social media, they're going to get like tens and tens of likes. I mean, it's not anything out of, the, out of the normal. These are things that they know. These are the things that they are familiar with. And they just do these fundamental elements within this thing called the church, and God's Spirit moves in incredible ways. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to take Acts 2.42, and I want to walk through those four elements that we find there and talk about them in the context of what we're reading and what's happening and how important they were, but then also in our context today and why we as the church should continue to follow these same fundamentals ourselves. All right? So here we go. Fundamental number one, teaching. Teaching. Think about this crew for a second. Again, Jesus doesn't leave them a manual. They don't have uh, that with them. Um, Jesus tells them to go into the world, baptize people. And they're like, we, we did that. Like 3,000 people were baptized. But Jesus says, then you need to teach those people how to obey my commands. Like, what do we do now? Because here's the deal. They didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't like the apostles could come up and like, all right, here's what I want you to do. Get your Bible. You know, pull out your phone. Uh, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read Acts 2, 42 through 47 together. They couldn't do that because that was them, right? They, they couldn't read the New Testament because they were the New Testament. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't have theological degrees. They didn't have any of that. And so if you're supposed to teach these people how to obey the commands and the teachings of Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to do what you know? There's two things that this group of people knew. The first thing they knew is they knew the Jewish prophecies. These are people who have grown up Jewish their whole life. They have learned the Old Testament. Some of them have even memorized much, if not all of it. They know the prophecies. In fact, if you go back to the beginning part of Acts 2, you find that Peter, he uses the prophecies to tell them about Jesus and to remind them of the past and, and how this Messiah is coming. And so there's this, this opportunity to share those prophecies and say, hey, look, you see those prophecies? You know those prophecies we've talked about and you've learned about your whole life? They've been fulfilled through Jesus. And so they use the prophecies to talk about Jesus. But then the other thing that they do is that they are eyewitnesses 
to Jesus. They have seen Jesus in action. If we go back there, we see those words where it talks about the apostles' teachings. It's like all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What are these apostles teaching? What do these apostles know? Well, to be an apostle, there were certain characteristics that you had to have. We find this in Acts chapter 1, 20, verses 21 through 22. We're going to put it up on the screen there. And I highlighted a couple of these things here. What we see here, one characteristic was you had to be there. I'm going to go down the second piece there. When Jesus was baptized by John. So you had to be present at that moment to be an apostle. Second thing you had to do, you had to be with this whole crew the entire time that they were traveling with Jesus. Now, we know the 12 disciples, right? There were actually more people who were following Jesus around. And so you had to be at the baptism. You had to be there through this travel time with Jesus over the course of these three years. And then you had to be there when Jesus was taken into heaven. So this was a smaller group of people. But if you think about all these characteristics here, that meant that they spent a crazy amount of time in the presence of Jesus. So they heard all of Jesus' teachings. They, they watched his healings. They were there when these miracles took place. So they were incredible eyewitnesses. They had firsthand accounts of who Jesus was. And so as they're talking through these pair, uh, prophecies and talking about them being fulfilled by Jesus, they're also talking about, hey, let me tell you about this one time. And somebody else was like, yep, I, I was there. I saw that. Let me kind of explain to you my, my end of that. And so they're teaching through the prophecies and they're eyewitnesses to who Jesus is. And that made the words that they were saying and the things that they were teaching so powerful to the people that were there. For us today, teaching is still an important part of who we are as the church. I mean, you're experiencing that now here in this setting. Uh, Journey Kids is downstairs uh, being taught. Uh, our Journey Teens, our middle school crew, they're down there being taught. Our high school, they start their... Uh, with, with the middle school, they start refuel here in a couple of, of weeks. They're going to be taught when we're in small groups, there's teaching that takes place. When we're uh, being coached by one of the leaders here, or we're a volunteer, there, there's teaching that takes place. When we're doing one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, there's, there's teaching that happens. And that teaching can be so powerful to grow our faith and the faith of others. It was fundamental to the early church, and it's fundamental to the church today, too. And so that's why we do this thing called teaching. But then there's a second piece here. There's the fundamental number two. There is fellowship. When I hear that word fellowship, I always think fellowship hall, right? You remember the churches maybe you grew up in, they had a fellowship hall? The ugliest room in the whole church. I mean, nobody spent any time doing any design right there. You weren't getting any shiplap down in the fellowship hall, were you? And the acoustics were horrendous. I mean, you would talk and it would just bounce off every single wall in that room but there was magic that happened in that space too Sundays after church those potlucks remember that like grandmas would cook their best food ever they'd cook some great casseroles and then they would have their desserts and you were setting up being bored by the pastor and wait for him to finish and and all you could do you remember you could just smell the food from downstairs in the fellowship hall You're like I can't wait to eat and and he was done, and the service was done. I mean, you sprinted downstairs as fast as you could to get in front of the line, and you're eating all these great, great foods that, that are there. I mean, it's just sort of this amazing, amazing experience. Now, today you can't do potlucks, and here's the reason why. Most of us don't cook. Let's just be honest. 
And if we say we're having a potluck, everybody's going down to the KFC in Kingstown, and then everybody's going to get a bucket of chicken, but we're not going to have any sides and desserts, okay? That's why we don't do that. That's why we do something like Mission Barbecue. We take care of everything for you. But, um, but when I think about fellowship, maybe when you think about fellowship, you think about the, the fellowship hall, hanging out and food. The word that's used here for fellowship actually means sharing and contributing. That's what they're actually doing here. Let me, um, again, let me give you a little background. At this particular time when we're reading this, there are a ton of people in Jerusalem. Uh, the Pentecost festival is coming to an end, and you have thousands and thousands of people that are there in Jerusalem and many of them are pilgrims. They've come from some other part of the world to be there just for this festival. All right, so you got all these people that are there and they're not native to Jerusalem. Well, at the very beginning of what we read here, there's this moment where God's Spirit shows up on those 120 people I talked about a little bit earlier. So the Holy Spirit comes in, they start speaking in these different languages, and all of these pilgrims that are there, they hear these different languages. First they think they're drunk, but then they're like, wait, hold up a second. That's my language. That's the language that is spoken where I live. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to this and hear what they have to say. And so you have this miracle that takes place. Peter jumps in, sees an incredible opportunity. He preaches this message. I talked about that just a second ago, where he shares these prophecies and connects it to Jesus. And 3,000 people are baptized. If you are there in that moment, okay, put yourself into the story. And this happens in front of you over the course of a few hours, maybe a day or two. What are you going to do? Are you going to go home? No. Home is the last place you want to go. You're going to stay put. You're going to hang out there. You want to see what God is up to. But there's a problem. If you're a pilgrim, you plan for your time there in Jerusalem. Uh, it's kind of like when we plan for trips. Um, you know, you, you go on a trip, you plan for the amount of days that you're going to be gone. Now, I know some of you, uh, you'll pack like four suitcases for an overnight trip. Normal people don't do that, okay? Normal people are kind of like, all right, we're going to be gone for five days. Let's pack for five days, maybe for six, just to be on the safe side. And so you have enough food, you have enough clothing, you have enough money, you have the resources that you need. These pilgrims have come into Jerusalem, and they've only planned for a certain amount of time. But then they're at this place where like, oh, we're kind of running out of money and resources, and um, man, our, our jobs are back home, our incomes are back home, and everybody's kind of looking around like, how are we going to help these pilgrims out? And so here's what we find. These followers of Jesus that are there in the local area of Jerusalem decide, well, we're going to share and contribute with what we have. And so some of them are giving out of the abundance that they have, uh, food and money and clothing. Uh, others are actually selling their land and their possessions, their stuff, and they're taking that money and they're distributing it to, to give to these people who are there because they know they need these resources. Now, there's another piece to this, okay? Here's the other piece. All of these people, they think Jesus is coming back, not in a few years, a few months, even a few weeks. They think Jesus is coming back in hours or days. And so they're kind of in this, this anticipation of what might happen. So they're there in this city, and the people around them are helping them in any way that they can. 
This was known as the community of, of goods. Uh, we, we think about food. We, we think about hanging out. We think about fellowship halls when, when it comes to that word fellowship. But it was this community of goods. where We're going to help care for the people that are here. Well, how does this play out within the church today? Um, wow, there's so many different ways that we can serve and share and contribute to the needs of others. And, and honestly, I think this is one of the biggest things uh, that we can do. And I, I think it's one of the biggest things that we are called to do as the church. Uh, we can make a big old list, and it could be 100, 200 points long, but just a couple of thoughts here. May, maybe for you it's being a babysitter for a single mom or single dad that just needs a, a break. Maybe it's sitting down and, and listening to someone as they share the heartbreak that they're, they're going through. It could be for someone else, you fix their car for them, you paint a room for them, that you're jumping in to help them in some way. And maybe it is, you're like, hey, here's a gift card for you, you know, use it, spend it how you want to spend it. Or uh, We've got like 50 babies, I think they're getting ready to be born here in the next couple of months. And maybe you've got some gently used, not 150-year-old stuff, but gently used or even new baby equipment or baby, baby clothing. And you're like, hey, can I help you out? I got this stuff and we're not going to ever use it again. Uh, it could be a meal train, being a part of that team. Uh, we've got a group of people that have said, hey, if someone needs meals, we will jump in and we will take them meals. Uh, that's a great way to, to show love and care for someone else. And in fact, there, on the QR code, if you hit that today, there's actually a link for the meal train. We'd love for you to join us as, as we take meals to people that maybe they're sick, maybe they're going through COVID, maybe they've lost a loved one, something else is going on in their life. And many of us here, we've experienced that. And it's just this amazing way that we can give back. Fellowship isn't about a fellowship hall. It's not about Mrs. Kiger's green bean casserole. It's all about sharing and contributing to the needs of others. That was fundamental in the early church and it's fundamental to us today. Well, fundamental number three that we have here is the breaking of bread. And this is the food part, all right? They ate meals together. And I can only imagine these meals were about as good as potlucks back in the day. I mean, you've probably got matzo ball soup. Uh, you got some shala, you got some falafel, you got brisket. I know some of you are like, well, no, 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 brisket was invented in Texas. Sorry, it wasn't. It's been around for thousands of years. In fact, the Jewish people would eat it on most of the holidays, okay? So the Jewish people, the Israelites, they're the inventors of brisket and not our people from down in the Texas area. The food was an important part of what they, they did. And there was a reason for that. I mean, one, you're taking care of the needs of other people, right? You're, you're doing this fellowship piece where you're sharing and contributing. But we know what food does. We did a series at the beginning of the year called Bless, and we talked about, in one of the weeks, we talked about the power of food, the power of meals, being able to sit down and have a meal with other people and to, to talk through life, right? Food breaks down barriers. It's why in our groups, we tell our group leaders, you got to have food. We don't care what it looks like. And some of our groups, they actually eat a meal together every time they, they get together. Uh, others, like our group, it's kind of like a finger food type thing. Maybe others, you just kind of do leftovers or frozen pizzas or whatever. But, but you got to have food. And the reason is, it really opens us up to having conversations with other people. Again, it breaks down those barriers. And so food is an important part, and they were using that as a way to interact and to build these relationships and these connections with people that are all of a sudden like, man, we're following Jesus. This is amazing, and we get to talk about this together. 
But there's another aspect of this that's so important too, and that's the Lord's Supper. And so every time they would actually get together in homes and they would have these meals, the Lord's Supper, communion was a piece of that. And so they did this every single time. Uh, for us, uh, maybe your groups do that or your group does that, but uh, for us today, most of the time we don't do that within our groups, but we do it here on Sunday morning. And the reason we do it on Sunday morning is the same reason they did it in this early church. We want to be reminded of the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion together as a church, as a body, as a team, to be reminded of who Jesus is in our life and to be reminded how we are in this together. And so food was an integral part of the early church. It was fundamental, and the Lord's Supper was fundamental to them too. And then the last fundamental we have here is prayer. Now, prayer was already an important part of their lives. Uh, it was very routine for them. There were a couple of times a day that you were supposed to go to the temple to pray. Now, for them, their prayers were memorized, most of them. Um, th these were prayers that they started to remember when they were little kids. I mean, their parents would teach them this, and over the years, they, they would learn, and they would know these prayers, and they would say these prayers over and over again. But can you imagine those prayers that you prayed as a kid, which really were many of them praying about the Messiah to come, and now the Messiah had come. I mean, those prayers had to take on a whole new life. They had to mean so much more to these people who are praying them and praying them together. There was power in those prayers. And prayer, again, was fundamental to the early church. And prayer is fundamental to the church today. Prayer is an important piece to who we are. We do it within our services. We do it with one-on-one uh, -on -one with our, our prayer team. We do it in our small groups. We do it when our ministry teams get together. Maybe, maybe you do it in conversations with someone one-on-one. -on -one. Prayer has got to be fundamental to the church. It's not one of those things you can leave out. We find that the early church spent time in prayer. And for us today, we've got to learn to be a people of prayer too. In Acts 2.42, we see what the early church was doing. We see these fundamentals. We see how they were living life together, how they were supporting each other, how they were growing in their faith. I mean, it's just this amazing moment in the life of, of the church. They, they were living their lives together, and they were on Jesus' mission together. And God was using that in incredible ways in this early church. But the question is, out of these, all, these fundamentals, why did that work so well? well? I think there's a couple of things that we saw happen here. First, they were unified. They were unified. It's hard for me to believe, but it has been 21 years since 9-11 took place to the day. And if you are like me, you remember, um, if you're old enough, what that day was like. You remember everything you experienced. You remember where you were. You remember who you were with. You remember the images that you, you saw on the TV screens. You remember the feelings and the emotions that were, that were inside of you. I mean, there, there's so much that, that go back 21 years ago, and we remember that particular day. But I don't know if you're like me, which really blew me away were the, the days and weeks and months after that. 
where our country, and I'd probably even say our world, were united like never before. I mean, there weren't any differences. There weren't really any political parties. Uh, there was no backstabbing that seemed to be happening. I mean, it was just this incredible frame of time where we were unified together like I've never experienced in my entire life. I think about that as I think about this early church and how unified they were together. They were connected. They were bonded. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And in fact, we see that. If we go back to what we just read a little bit ago, and I want to throw these words up here on the screen, there's a common thread that we see here, right? A deep sense of awe came over them. What? Help me out. Thank you. And the believers met and shared everything had. They sold property. They worshiped and shared meals. You see that common thread there? It doesn't say he did this, she did that. There's all these words of how they were unified. Like they had fully come together to live out the mission of Jesus. And Jesus and God were using that in incredible, incredible ways. They were unified in this. And the Spirit was moving and amazing things were taking place. They were unified. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the next couple of weeks, but hey, unity within the church <laughs> is very, very important. God used it in incredible ways there, and I believe God still used that today. But there's another piece of this, and we just read that just a second ago. They were in awe. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says, A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. You remember when Sports Center used to actually be Sports Center? Remember those days where they actually showed highlights from the time it started to the, the time it ended, right? Now it's like one long uh, soap opera, basically, or talk show that seems to be happening. Uh, but at least now they still do like the Sports Center top 10 highlights at, at the end of every single show. And there's just a, these amazing feats from athletes all over the world. And we get to sit there and, and watch them and, and just be amazed by it. We see that word all there and we think the exact same thing, right? We think excitement. We, we think this, this idea of amazement. But the word that's actually used there is the word fear. So here's this group of people that are living in this holy terror, okay? Because on the one hand, they're like, God's doing some amazing things. And on the other hand, they're saying, God's doing some <laughs> amazing things. I mean, they were kind of terrified of what they were seeing happening around them. These miracles that were taking place and, and how all these people had come to follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit working and people speaking in these different languages and all these people coming to follow Jesus. I mean, for them, it was like this holy terror that they were living out because God was doing some incredible things. And for them, they're wondering, hey, what is God going to do next? We're kind of excited about what God's going to do. And at the same time, we're a little bit terrified. And so there's this idea of this holy terror that they were experiencing in their lives. I wonder if we have lost in the church today that feeling of that same holy terror. That we've gotten this place, we're kind of like, 
hey, God's maybe going to do some amazing things. And, you know, maybe if it's, you know, amazing enough, I'll have a little fear. It's almost like we're not even expectant to God or for God to move in incredible ways, for God's spirit to move in amazing ways. It's almost like we have lost this ability to live in the state of holy terror. This early church did that, and God used that, and people's lives were changed, and things happened within that church that they couldn't explain except for God. I wonder for us if it's not time to go back and be full of that holy terror again. Well, this awe that they felt, this unity that they had, the fundamentals that they were living out, in the end, this was the biggest piece to all of this. People's lives were being changed. People's lives were being changed. If we go back and we look at the rest of Acts chapter 2, we find they're meeting at the temple daily to worship. They're meeting in homes and talking about the amazing things that are happening. They're sharing their own stories. They're sharing what they had experienced with Jesus. They're sharing what they've been experiencing as this early church is just beginning. They're sharing how Jesus changed their lives and how they are different people because of Jesus. Like this transformation has taken place inside of them. And how did they get to that place? Well, they got to that place because of those fundamentals, right? They're, they're teaching, um, they're fellowshipping together, they're eating together, they're praying together, they're giving and, and helping each other out. I mean, all these things are happening. And because of that, people's lives are being changed. Acts 2.47, at the very end of Acts 2, it says, And each day the Lord had added to their fellowship those who were being saved. They're just living out the things that they knew to do. And they were following what Jesus had commanded them to do. And people see this and they're like, that looks pretty good. I think I'd like to be a part of that too. And so more and more people were coming to know Jesus. More and more people were coming to faith because of what they were experiencing through this new thing called the church. Like if I can just be honest with you for a second, the journey church we do not exist to entertain you. The Journey Church does not exist so that on a Sunday morning, you can put a little check beside the Went to Church on your to-do list. Journey Kids, it does not exist to babysit your children. Journey Teens does not exist to be the sole spiritual formation for your teenagers. The, the Journey Groups that, that we do, they're not there just because all the other churches are doing it and we want to be like all the other churches. The community work that, that we do, that Kathleen was talking about a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, hey, we don't do that just to make ourselves feel better. We do what we do as the church because of what we see here in this early church, that people's lives were changed, that people came to know who Jesus was. And this church right here exists to see more and more people meet Jesus for the very first time. And this church right here exists to see more and more people fully follow Jesus throughout their lives. That's why we exist here. There is no other reason. And we will tell you that is our focus and that is the hill we will die on if we have to because we believe in the power of God. We believe in the story of Jesus. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we exist here to see more and more people meet Jesus 
and more and more people to fully follow Jesus too. You know how we do that? We live out these fundamentals. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. It doesn't have to be all shiny. It's just living out these fundamentals together, doing it unified, doing it with a sense of God is up to something that is an amazing and almost terrifying because it's so incredible what God can do. When all these elements come together, people's lives, your life, my life, are being changed for now and for eternity. Well, this morning, as we think about these fundamentals, we think about the early church and how it still impacts us today, there's a couple of next steps that I would throw out there for you to think about taking with us. The first one is, will you join us on this journey that we're on together? Uh, today, we are, we're asking you to jump in to one of our groups. I think we've got 20 groups here at The Journey. We would love for you to be in a group. You're going to get a, a little bit of stuff on Sunday morning, but I can tell you life change is not going to happen in this setting, okay? It's going to happen in these smaller settings and smaller groups where we spend time and we interact with other people, where teaching is happening in a, in a smaller group, uh, where, where prayer is taking place and fellowship, we're serving and taking care of each other. This is where this all happens, Okay. And so there in front of you, you've got a QR code. You can click that on that, and you can say, hey, I'd love to check out this group or these groups. You can fill out that connection card. There's going to be people outside at the tent as you leave. Uh, you can go there, and you can talk to them about neighborhood groups. But if you come to lunch today, we really are going to focus on that. Now, here's the deal. You can come to lunch and not join one of the groups, okay? You can just come to see the people that live where you live. And so we, we hope that you'll do that. Just come back, be a part of that. We love for you to get into a group, to experience, to experience, I think, what the early church experienced. Will you join us in that today? But there's another next step that I would, um, a question I would ask. Will you allow yourself to be transformed by Jesus? And for some of us, that's meeting Jesus for the very first time. For some of us, it's doing what those 3,000 people did on that particular day. It's by being baptized. And so September 25th, and two weeks from now, we are doing a Baptism Sunday. And if you would love to be baptized, you've got questions about baptism, uh, please let us know again. You can do the connection card on that, the QR code. You can fill out a connection card that's there, paper, and take it out to our guest tent. Um, take that first step and then be a part of this journey that we're called to be on together. Vince Lombardi said, gentlemen, this is a football. And Jesus says, hey, everybody, this is my church. Will you live out my mission in this place together? Let's pray.